Hi, and welcome to the Kids Yoga Podcast, the place for all things kids yoga. My name is Jessica Mujis, and after teaching kids yoga and being immersed in the industry for over a decade, I created this podcast as a warm and supportive place for parents, teachers, caregivers, and kids yoga professionals to gather. Episodes include conversations with kids yoga teachers, business owners, and authors, informational episodes on specific kids yoga topics, yoga adventures for children, and even the voices of children themselves. It is my hope that you can come here each week and gain inspiration and form connection with your fellow kids yoga community. Welcome to the Kids Yoga Podcast. I'm so glad you're here. Welcome to another episode of the Kids Yoga Podcast. I'm your host, Jessica Mujis, and this week I am excited to be joined by Reshmi Bismarck. Reshmi is a new kids book author of the award-winning picture book, Finding Om. She is a physician by training, specialized in preventative medicine and public health. Her clinical focus is teaching mindfulness and mind-body approaches for well-being. She is also a daughter, wife, and mother, raising biracial, Black, and South Asian yoginis in training. Reshmi, welcome to the show. Hi, Jessica. It's lovely to be here. Thanks for getting in touch with me. Absolutely. I'm so glad you could be here. And I have questions about so many things that you've done. <laughs> and your, your career is kind of spanning so many areas. So I guess I wanted to start with um, how and why you chose to study to become a doctor? Yeah, thank, that's a great question. Um, I think for me, um, that draw to medicine and becoming a physician was ultimately really about um, serving people in the community and helping with um, health and healing. I had, um, as a child, um, was diagnosed with an autoimmune disorder, and so I kind of had become familiar with the medical world a little bit just through having to go to the doctor quite a bit when I was younger. And so that, I think, sparked some curiosity for me. Um, and actually, uh, our family, we ended up um, using quite a bit of Ayurvedic medicine. Um, Ayurveda is a traditional healing system from India. Um, and for those of your listeners who may not have heard about it before, um, uh, Ayurveda is uh, kind of the indigenous medicine system that sort of developed in South Asia. So Ayur means life, Veda is knowledge, so it's the knowledge of life and living. And so there's a lot of um, sort of uh, holistic approaches to health. And so when I was uh, diagnosed with this autoimmune condition when I was younger, my mom sought some help from some Ayurvedic uh, physicians. And so I also kind of had been exposed to a little bit of, um, you know, these alternative, uh, complementary sort of approaches to health from a young age, too. So all of that sort of ignited a lot of curiosity in me about ways of supporting health um, and healing for people. So that, I think, was kind of the big draw was that service and helping people with health and healing. And 
the fact that you as a child were kind of um, able to receive, you were in a place where you were getting Western medicine, but also getting the other perspective of the Ayurveda, as you're saying. Yeah. Um, I'm sure that shaped you in so many ways. Yeah. Yeah. And as um, you know, we had chatted or you had noticed in my bio, I think that I had studied a bit of Ayurveda. And so as I was, you know, in college, um, I was really more curious about the philosophy behind Ayurveda and um, yoga and these kind of approaches to health. And so actually, I, I kind of made up my own major that combined like medical anthropology and um, South Asian religions and public health so that I could kind of uh, create a reason to go study abroad in India my senior year. And so I went to do my senior project on um, the doctor-patient relationship in Ayurvedic medicine. And so I, I got to spend six months in India um, with our family. My parents are immigrants to the U.S. from Kerala, which is the southwest coast of India. And so I was I stayed there with our family there. And one of my father's um, great uncles was a well-respected Ayurvedic healer. A Vaidyan is the, the word for healer, um, Ayurvedic healer. And so he, um, you know, I got to spend some time with him as well as, as others, just learning a little bit more about the philosophy and the approach to health. And um, so that, that really inspired me even more around ways that I wanted to be helping people when I came back home. Some of the things that really struck me the most um, were really actually so uh, this um, great uncle of mine, his name was Raghavan Thirumopad, and uh, he was so inspiring as in his youth, um, was very involved with um, the India's, you know, freedom movement and Gandhian philosophy. And um, as part that also really influenced his approaches in Ayurveda. Um, you know, at the time when I was going to study with him was a time too when, um, you know, a lot of the younger Ayurvedic physicians um, were in some way trying to uh, compete with the Western world of medicine too, you know, so there was a lot of focus on like the, the pharmacology and making all these compound drugs to kind of compete with pharmaceutical Western pharmaceuticals. And he used to say, you know, all of this is wonderful, but really, you know, um, one of the most important roles of a healer is to help people realize their inner capacity for, for for health and healing and how much they actually have have control over in terms of simple things like diet and, and lifestyle. And um, so, you know, he, he was really influenced by the Gandhian idea of Swaraj, which is like um, the um, inner ability for ruling yourself and, you know, empowering yourself. And so he really... Um, espoused that in the way that he would interact with patients with in terms of, you know, always talking about lifestyle and emphasizing that and how much people can shift and change simply by approaching the diet or their routine or physical activity in, in a different way. Um, and so, you know, and I, and I was so impressed by that, you know, that was like really a preventive medicine. And I remember, I remember using that word with him. Uh, 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 not not prevention because prevention already implies disease and illness. He's like, I'm a positive health promoter. That's what he would say. <laughs> 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 so, 
Yes. <laughs> I thought was so sweet, <laughs> but it really is, you know, so, so a lot of that really, um, influenced the way that, that I started to think about the role of a physician or a healer in a community as I went to med school and, and so on. So through my training, you know, um, a lot of that was in my heart and, um, you know, I, I went through my training kind of trying to figure out where my spot it was in medicine and I wasn't quite sure. Um, and then I was fortunate enough to be able to take a little break in my training. Uh, my husband, um, has a job where we were able to sort of travel a little bit. So after we got married, when I was in my residency, actually was his first opportunity to go abroad. And it was such a good opportunity that we couldn't pass that up. And so we, we went and lived, um, abroad for a bit of time. Um, and so having that break and I had my kids at that time. And so by the time I kind of came back into medicine, um, I really had cemented this love for prevention and ended up finishing my um, residency in preventive medicine. So I ended up getting my master's in public health. Um, And by the time when I came back into medicine, you know, was kind of that time when mindfulness was really starting to boom in healthcare. And so it was such um, a, a wonderful blessing in many ways, because now there was this kind of more validated way for me be, to be able to kind of share some of this yoga philosophy with, with patients through different mindfulness programs. Um, and so I started to, to um, focus my professional training on uh, teaching mindfulness, like mindfulness-based stress reduction and other kinds of mindfulness-based interventions um, for clinical populations. So that's my focus now with my work. Yes. So this is... Um... It's just so exciting for me to hear because I respect doctors so much. And I've also, my experience has only really been with uh, just traditional Western doctors. And I've felt so many times like there was something missing when I went because it's very much, there There seems to be a lack of um, talking to me <laughs> as a person. <laughs> and it's like, hi, why are you here? Oh, what's the symptom? here's a medicine for it or, you know, or whatever it might be. And, and I've had so many experiences like that, um, where I've been like that this doesn't feel right. There's some, there's so much more. I think we're all complex humans. And as, as you're saying, it's like, what's your lifestyle and what's the greater picture? It's, I think that's just so important. It is. And, you know, also medicine has, um, uh, there's so much that goes into that office visit too. I mean, you know, even medicine isn't what it was even 20 years ago when I was in medical school, that we still had more time with patients. And now, you know, in a primary right. care setting, it's so different now. And there's a lot of, um, you know, even just the introduction of having to input things into the computer, <laughs> like, well, it's lovely right. and it helps us to be able to have all sorts of wonderful statistics, but also adds another barrier to that connection sometimes. So, I mean, I don't think it's, for a lack of wanting to connect. It's just, there's so much on a doctor's plate when they're kind of seeing you in that office visit that they have to manage. So, so absolutely. And I know it it's, it's complicated with insurance and I, I know it must be just, I know the logistics of it all. It's just yeah. hard on everyone. Yeah, it is. It is hard. And so that was, you know, um, one of the things that drew me to teaching mindfulness was I really felt like I was able to interact with groups of patients in a way that I often am not able to in a 
15 minute office visit, you know, and sort of really take people through, um, through something transformative that can really help them change the way that they relate to themselves, relate to their illness, so that they can, you know, find some connection to, to a sense of flourishing or peacefulness um, through whatever they're going through. Yes. Well, I, I, I'm also just curious, um, your own experience with yoga, like when did you first start practicing yoga and what has your journey with yoga been like? Yeah, that's a great question. Thanks for asking. Um, so as I had mentioned before, my, my parents had immigrated to the States from India. So I grew up in an Indian home and a Hindu home. And so, of course, there's a lot of yoga and yoga philosophy that's sort of interwoven into a lot of uh, different cultural and spiritual traditions that we, that we had at home. And um, my father was quite spiritual and had a very strong contemplative practice himself. Um, he, would, you know, he was an avid reader and was always reading um, and would spend time in contemplation and with his own spiritual practice. So I kind of grew up um, seeing him model a lot of that. And of course, there was always, always the invitation from him to, to come and, and be engaged with a lot of that. Um, he would, you know, um, encourage my sister and I to often to sit at least twice a day, you know, whether we prayed or not, just to kind of sit uh, and um, spend time with ourselves. And so that, that encouragement to sort of um, spend some quiet time with ourselves was was always there. Um, and of course, as I got older, got much more curious around more and more of this with our stories and the philosophy. Um, and then when I went to India to study more about Ayurveda, I was really able to delve much more into yoga philosophy. At that time as well, um, I had more formal training on meditation. And so um, really kind of deepened my relationship with that. So I'd say, you know, really the, the relationship began to really blossom much more in college. Um, and throughout med school, meditation was something that, uh, a practice that I really relied upon for, for well-being in many ways. Um, and then as I became a mom, um, started to appreciate even more uh, a lot of the rituals and opportunities um, in my cultural tradition and spiritual tradition uh, to sort of um, keep connecting with ourselves, our, our sense of awareness and our presence that are there. Um, as I was thinking about how to bring some of these traditions into my children's lives in a meaningful way. Um, I remember as a kid just always questioning everything. Like I really had to know why we were doing anything, um, whether it was a, a prayer or um, a song we were singing or whatever it was that we were doing, I needed to know, you know, <laughs> what it meant and why we were doing it. And luckily, my parents were so patient with me. And so, <laughs> you know, as I started to think about how I wanted to um, bring a lot of this into my children's lives, um, uh, that, you know, that relationship with yoga just continued to blossom and, and even grows to this day. And what I found with my children as I was bringing more mindfulness um, into into our days was how many opportunities for remembering mindfulness um, there were that I grew up with and mantras was something that my children really connected with I think 
part of it for them was um, it was this kind of connection to a language that was a part of their lineage. And it was also something that they really enjoyed sharing with my father and learning um, learning different mantras, the, the sound, the rhythm. Sometimes, you know, they might be set to a song. And so there was all of that artistry that's there as well. Um, and so, you know, we started to explore a lot around um, mantra and the use of mantra to kind of help us connect with ourselves or, or remember different qualities within ourselves. And so those are some of the things that started to inspire me uh, um, to create a, a book series, which is what Finding Om is the first part of. So, um, you know, as, as the children were small, um, I was staying here uh, with my parents and I had ordered a bunch of books. Um, There's so many beautiful kids books on yoga and mindfulness these days. And so I had like, you know, a box of books that had come in from Amazon and also some books, you know, sharing Indian stories. And my husband is from Zimbabwe. So I was just collecting some cultural different picture books for the kids. And as we were looking through them, my dad was like, oh, like, you know, you have all these, the Indian myths, you know, that we, and stories that we grew up with, and oh, look at all these yoga, yoga books and things too, but isn't it interesting that none of the yoga books seem to have um, any depiction of um, our culture or cultural elements in it. And so, um, you know, it, it was, it was interesting to hear him say that, because how con conditioned I was to, in many ways, that I... And I had been so used to not seeing myself in stories mm. growing up that, like, it yeah. didn't even kind of hit me. I was just excited to have books about yoga for my kids because right. even that didn't exist when I was a kid, right? Um, and so at that time, we started just chatting, you know, about, like, oh, wouldn't it be neat? Because the girls had this affinity to mantras, and mantras are something that uh, in Hindu homes we often grow up with. And sometimes you learn the meaning, sometimes... You may not, or you're just told, oh, it doesn't matter, just repeat it, or, or, or the uh, translation may just be, go over your head as a child, you know, and mm -hmm. so we were saying how wonderful it might be to have something as a resource for, you know, other parents like me that are growing up and trying to figure out how to bring these things to our kids in Hindu homes, or um, I have so many friends in interfaith marriages who are trying to figure out how to bring different um, different, you know, spiritual practices into their kids' lives. And so um, at that time, we kind of had started to talk about all of that. And um, unfortunately, it, my, my father um, was, was battling cancer at that time, and his illness had gotten a bit worse. And so, um, you know, he, he ended up passing away a few months later. And so I kind of had put that project aside, you know, it was... Um, Kind of hard to be with because it was something we had talked about you yeah, know, together yeah. and it was probably a good year after he had passed away and um, my youngest daughter was at Christmas and we were sitting together and she, she had just gotten like a sparkly journal and she was all excited <laughs> about it she was like oh you know remember you and Apupa Apupa means grandfather in our language she said oh remember you and Apupa had talked about you know making a mantra picture book like let's let's make something and I'll do all the drawings you know and so we sat together that morning and um, kind of wrote something out um, with one of their favorite mantras called Gayatri Mantra and 
um, what sort of came about felt very special. And so that year, I think it was like two years ago in January, I like put out a Facebook post and I was like, does anyone know anything about kids books or how I can <laughs> get started with something like this? And, um, and so fortunately, um, I got linked up with the publisher that I'm now published with, um, Mango and Marigold Press. At that time, they were called Parath Babies. And this is a small um, publishing house in Boston. It's all female run. And their focus is on um, uh, bringing stories from the South Asian diaspora um, to picture books and um, middle-aged children's books. And so, um, so I'd contacted them with my the, you know, manuscript, and they're like, oh, this has so much potential, but you need to learn a lot about children's literature, because here I am coming from medicine. And, <laughs> right. You know, completely yeah. different field. Um, and so I worked with their editor, and um, for the guide three-monther book, I actually had this introduction for parents on meditation, mantra, mindfulness, how they're interrelated. And um, she was like, oh, like, this is such a rich introduction. Like, you should make this into the first, into the first book that would come before this one. And I remember at the time when she said that, I'm like, oh, how will I do that? You know, but, um, but we actually had come home that summer um, to my mom's house, and it was kind of like the first summer after my, you know, year after my dad had passed being here and um, I think just being in his energy, the energy in the home and suddenly it was like, oh yeah, like Om, it's, this book should be about Om and mm. um, within probably a, like a five days or so, kind of the, the um, most of the script was written um, here in, the, in my mom's house and then over time, of course, that we polished it in different ways and, and all of that, but but so that's kind of how Finding Ohm, um, this first book, sort of came about. I, w- I know that your dad would be just so proud to see this come to life, this thing. Yeah. That, and how that story of him kind of pointing that out of, oh, interesting. I don't see yeah. us represented here and how you had been conditioned to not even see that. I mean, that's so telling. Even in this journey of writing these books and, you know, my how much... Um, too, like we are conditioned in this way. Like I've had, you know, my my father's, my parents' generation, aunties and uncles say to me, like, are you sure people would want to read about, you know, maybe maybe you should make it an American family. And I'm like, well, we are an American family, just a diverse (laughs) one. So So I like that 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 feeling that um, you know, that maybe our stories aren't good enough or that people wouldn't want to read them, you know, so, so how much that really is there for us and, and our parents' generation too. Yeah. And, and how powerful that for your children, that they just see that you created this book and that it seems like you kind of work together on it too, that they're a part of this and then that they'll grow up with this book out there and yeah. the series out there. We have to hope that um, it, it, I see. I do see a shift and more representation happening, but obviously it needs to be a major shift. So this is just, I think, so exciting and very needed. Very very yeah. needed. Well, it is exciting, and you know, um, the, in this this um, 
topic of representation, it, you know, coming from medicine, I, I didn't really know a lot about children's literature or the field overall. And so, you know, I, of course, I knew anecdotally that there weren't a lot of diverse books. You know, you go into Barnes and Noble and it's not very often you'll find, you know, that many books that might feature black or brown characters, right? So, I mean, mm -hmm. I, I knew that just from trying to find books, but I, I didn't really understand the depth of it until finding out some of the research that, and that's out there. Like, um, you might have seen on my Instagram page, um, you know, in, in the U.S., there was a study in 2018 um, that showed that, um, you know, only like only 10% of books feature black characters, only 7% of children's picture books had Asian characters, 5% Latina, I think it's like less than 1% American Indian, the other, you know, 77, 80% is, is white characters or animals. And so um, that was really mind blowing to me that, that it, you know, that, that there was that much lack of representation in children's books. I, I, I didn't realize it. And I think seeing those kinds of numbers make you just, oh, realize uh, the importance even more of, of how, um, how much we do really need to think about the books that we have in our shelves for our kids and how they're, you know, not only how, how they're seeing themselves, but how they're able to see other communities. I mean, that statistic like made me shudder. I was like, there's more books with animals as the main characters than representing the children, the diversity of children that live in the right. world. Right. So it's right. like, wow. So I'm, yeah. I'm just, I'm so glad that you're doing something about it and that you, um, you found this way from, your your medical career and then into this path I think is also so unique I think you come at it from a very different lens and I think that's really valuable yeah well you know there's so many layers to it you know the of course the representation and, and two when you you know with the there's amazing yoga books and mindfulness books I mean I I actually teach a I'm teaching a class right now for teachers at my kids school where I incorporate some of the, the books on mindfulness picture books that are out there. Um, and, you know, and I think the more and more that we can sort of also build in some of this representation of the cultures that yoga and mindfulness kind of stem from, the more rich it can be for kids to just also learn about the roots of these practices that can be so enriching for, and we know there's so much even, uh, you know, evidence out there on how it, it um, can enrich our health and well-being in so many ways. Yes. Well, as I had mentioned to you um, when he talked briefly, you know, I can't help but see the parallels in our new vice president, Kamala yeah. Harris, and, and your, your main character. So your main, the main character of your book is an Indian African girl. Yeah. Um, so biracial, and we have our first black vice president, um, South Asian vice president. And I just wanted to ask you, how, how have your children reacted to this and how are you feeling about this kind of massive milestone in our history? Yes. Oh my gosh. We're, the girls are so excited. And as you mentioned, <laughs> yes. Yeah, so the, the, the finding home features my family. So it's basically my daughter, um, my eldest daughter exploring Om and mantra and meditation with my father. So it's kind of her sort of um, learning about Om and experimenting and playing with it herself and sort of falling upon her own practice of, meditation um and so 
it's it's our family, as I mentioned before. I think I'd mentioned my I'm Indian and my husband is from Zimbabwe, and so our our kids are black and South Asian, and so it was also really meaningful to have that represented in the book. Um, you know, not not only just to have the a black brown character on the front of a book, but also even within our Indian community to show how diverse the South Asian community can be, you know? So, um, and I mean, they're just so aesthetic. I, I don't think I ever imagined, but you know, I, I never imagined seeing a black and brown character on the cover of a book, let alone seeing, <laughs> seeing one, see, seeing a woman, who, a black woman of South Asian, heritage, you know, as vice president, I mean, it's just amazing. Um, yeah, my, my girls are thrilled, as I know many girls <laughs> across the country yes. are, so <laughs> it is exciting. Yes, this is, I, I can't help but feel like all of this, all these things happening are just this huge movement of all these things aligning and, you know, big changes being made. Yeah. yeah. Um, and now, as we speak, we are in the midst of a global pandemic and coming onto a second wave right now. Um, so I, throughout this whole thing, I've been asking people, how are you taking care of yourself during this time? So for you right now, and I know you're very busy in your career, you have two children, you have your husband, your family, how are you taking care of yourself? That's a great question. And actually, um, this is, has been a really interesting time for our family because we also made an international move. So we moved from the UK back home to the US just a couple of months ago. So it's been like mm. a very high transition time for us. Wow. And you know, we've moved quite a few times as well. And, you know, life is always in a little bit of transition. And so what we've found together as a family is really helpful is making sure um, that we build in that time for certain family rituals together, um, whether you know that's something simple as um, making sure that we're sitting at the dinner table together and saying a little prayer or connecting around our highs and lows for the day, or if it's at bedtime, you know, having having those rituals in place that are familiar and that help continue to build our connection has been really important for us. So, um, yeah, so for us, it is those simple things like, you know, mm -hmm. making sure that we're eating together um, at least a meal or um, at bedtime. Bedtime, my, my kids are still small. Well, they're 10 and 12. They're going to grow out of this soon. But they're still small enough now where, you know, we have our cuddles before bed. Aww, <laughs> and, yeah. and that's really been our time uh, where we connect around a lot of these practices, whether it's a quick body scan Every night includes a little bit of a loving-kindness practice. That was really important for us because we moved around so much um, when the kids were small. So we were often, you know, oceans away from family. And so some of the ways that we used to kind of continue to, of course, FaceTiming is wonderful, but other ways to kind of build in that connection was doing little loving-kindness practices and for the girls to be able to feel that connection through their hearts as well, to send love to grandparents and cousins and all the people that they missed was a really important thing. So all of those little rituals that they're used to, we, you know, we keep making sure that those are things we 
keep in place even when things get a little bit busy or if we're glued to the TV at nighttime to follow <laughs> what, the election news or whatever it is that, that we yeah. pause, pause for that too. Right? <laughs> no, that's great. It's, it's those little things and those consistencies that kind of mm-hmm. can offer that comfort for everybody. Yeah. And I think too, as you know, as a mom, like having those meaningful rituals uh, are so important for kids. I think when, when they have that kind of structure and they know what to expect, you know, it allows them to then build in that freedom for themselves too when they have the structure of something that, that builds stability into their days. Exactly. And the more people I talk to about kids yoga, that's what they say about teaching kids yoga as well. It's having those certain consistencies in every class, but also that freedom, which is then broadened by having those, um, those rituals for them that they know are going to come. Yeah. Um, well, I could talk to you forever, but I'm going to <laughs> start to wrap up. Me too. I find this every time when I'm talking to people, it's like, oh, I want to keep chatting, but our half I hour is know. getting up. <laughs> I know. Well, I wanted to ask you, I love to ask people for their little kids yoga gems. Yeah. So for you personally, if you can offer one piece of advice to someone new to sharing yoga with children, what would that be? You know, I, I don't regularly teach kids other than my own kids in my life because I usually teach mindfulness and, and yoga to adults in a clinical setting. And I think, you know, this is the same advice I would give to anyone, whether you're teaching adults or kids, is, you know, to always remember the, the heart of being a student as well when you're a teacher because the, the people that... This, the adults or children that you're teaching can often be your greatest teachers as well. And to kind of stay open to your own inner curiosity and, and interest as well. Um, and just to be open to um, that, that flow of wisdom that can go both ways. I think that's been um, one of the, the things that has um, really served me is that knowing that, you know, I, I may be sharing something, you know, or teaching something, but that, that I can equally be um, a student and learn so much from those that, that I'm sharing knowledge with, especially our little kiddos, right? I think my, I often say my kids are like my biggest teachers in life, as I'm sure you know as a mom too. So, so just re- remembering that, that we can also bring that heart of a student with us when we're teaching. That's so beautiful. I love that. <laughs> Well, I'm sure everyone's going to want to get your book, learn more about you. So where are the places that people can find you and where can they order the book? Sure. So um, the other thing that I wanted to mention too, um, Finding Om um, has a great curriculum guide, which is freely available um, through my publisher. So Finding Om is published by Mango and Marigold Press, and you can visit their website to purchase the book. Um, The book is also available um, at indie bookstores. You can order through them. I know a lot of local bookstores have been struggling through this pandemic. So if you can give them some business, that's always lovely. Um, Of course, it's also on other online retailers too, like Amazon as well. Um, But if you go to the Mango and Marigold website, you will also be able to find the free curriculum guide that goes with Finding Ohm. As I'd mentioned, Finding Om is kind of a meditation story with my daughter sort of um, falling upon a practice of meditation. And 
the curriculum guide sort of goes a little bit more deeper into the practice of meditation for families and educators and kids. Um, so it, it kind of guides through different sort of practices with different things for reflection. So for example, there's a um, inquiry around a body scan and an opportunity to sort of draw what you feel or see uh, experience in the body, things like that. Um, and then also in that curriculum guide is an exploration of OM and cultural appreciation versus appropriation. And um, I was able to work with a great children's educator named Archa Srivastava, who's also a yoga teacher. She's a um, educational director at um, Little Feminist, which is a great book subscription service. And so she worked with me to kind of to create that section on OM, which is a lovely, engaging section for kids as well. So that all of that is on the Mango and Marigold Press website. And then I'm on Instagram. I'm kind of newer-ish to Instagram. And so I'm, I'm on there so you can find me there. <laughs> I post about, you know, book stuff, a lot of book stuff right now. But then I, I also teach um, meditation for uh, yoga medicine with Tiffany Crookshank for their um, uh, yoga teacher training. So, you know, you can find information about that on my Instagram as well. And then I have my, my professional webpage as well, which is www thank you so much um for taking the time and just for doing the work that you do and it was so wonderful to connect and i hope that we could continue to stay in touch and i i'm gonna get that book asap and look at that oh, curriculum <laughs> and, and the curriculum guide i'll send that over to you too so oh, you'll, you'll have you. fun looking at that Thank you so much. Well, we will talk soon and just I hope that we get more representation and and this is, you know, one of one of the first steps. So I hope so Thanks too. I can't wait to see I hope I can't wait to see more and more stories like you shared. Thank you very yes. much for having me on, Jessica. And take care. Take care. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode or if you've listened before, there are a few ways that you can help this podcast to keep going. So first, you can click subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can leave a rating and a review. This will help more people find the podcast. You can follow us on social media at the Kids Yoga Podcast on Instagram and the Kids Yoga Podcast on Facebook. You can also email me. I love to hear your questions, comments, feedback. The Kids Yoga Podcast at gmail.com. Thanks for being here, and we'll see you next week.